We'll hear argument next to number 02-1689, Grupo Data Data Flux versus Atlas Global Group. Mr. Boyce. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the central question here is whether Atlas's post-filing change in citizenship should be allowed to create retroactive diversity jurisdiction in this case. To justify rewriting the long-standing time of filing rule, Atlas relies on the fact that this case was tried to verdict before the jurisdictional issue was identified and raised in the district court. May I ask you with respect to that, when you found out that you had this fundamental jurisdictional objection, when did you know that the partnership included partners, not only Texas entities, but two Mexican citizens? When did you find that out? There are two answers to your question, Justice Ginsburg. In terms of when we became aware of the issue, that was after verdict, and that's reflected in the affidavit which appears in the record at Volume 1, page 1887. In terms of the question of was there evidence in the record that could have been pieced together to identify this issue earlier, the answer to that question is yes. If it probably could have been identified earlier, should have been identified earlier, but it was not. But there's a curious thing about what Dataflux did. Dataflux at one point moved to add the Mexicans as individuals, as counter-defendants. Correct. And why would it do that if they were members of the partnership? If it was sure that they were members of the partnership, then you wouldn't need to make them defendants as individuals, because partners have individual liability. Two answers to that question, Your Honor. First, under the Texas Revised Limited Partnership Act, the partnership can sue, the limited partnership can sue on its own without the participation of the limited partners. In terms of our counterclaims against Yamosa and Robles, again, under the Texas statute, we can choose to sue the partnership itself or we can sue individual limited partners. In this circumstance, our counterclaim against them was predicated not on their status as limited partners, but rather on the fact that Mr. Yamosa and Mr. Robles made affirmative misrepresentations, was our position directly to us, to induce us to enter the contract that led to the lawsuit. So at that stage, you called them employees or former employees. So it seems that the — that you had some inkling. There was some confusion early on in terms of what exactly their status was, and we, Dataflux, did not thoroughly explore that issue early on, and that should have been done earlier. But I would also note that the bottom line here is that Atlas 
the party with unique knowledge of the exact circumstances of its partnership at the time of filing is the party here who filed the case in federal court at a time when there was not diversity jurisdiction. There certainly could have been more that we should have done to explore the issue earlier. Well, you've admitted it. You, didn't, you just admitted it flat out in your answer. Yes, Your Honor. There were admissions uh, that uh, jurisdiction existed, but I would hasten to add that uh, pursuant to the longstanding rule that jurisdiction cannot be stipulated to, agreed to, uh, created by estoppel or waiver, that those statements are not effective to create jurisdiction if it does not exist at the outset. And I, I would emphasize the language that was relied on most recently uh, in this Court's decision in Contract from January, uh, in which the Court noted that uh, a Court's subject matter jurisdiction cannot be expanded to account for the party's conduct during litigation. And I think that principle addresses there. Should, is there more that could have been done to explore this earlier, uh, this issue earlier and bring it up? The answer to that question is yes. But I don't think that that circumstance uh, undermines the fundamental rule here, which is that as of the time of filing, there was not a diversity present, and because of that — Well, there was, in the constitutional sense, there wasn't under the statute. There was diversity, but not complete diversity. I think the, there is some room to discuss that, uh, Justice Ginsburg, in light of the dissent's contention uh, that there was, in fact, no diversity, where you have one litigant here, one plaintiff, one defendant, and both are uh, citizens of Mexico at that time. It may be a situation where uh, — That's th not what — well, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that Atlas is a partnership. <coughs> that is correct. And that, it, and that there are three players involved. A five. Two are Mexican and three are Texan. There, there. So then you would have on one side Texan and Mexican and the other side Texan. If you drop out the Mexicans, then you're left from the plaintiff side, <coughs> then you're left with a complete diversity case. Atlas is one entity with multiple citizenships. Uh, and and if, if the question suggests that there was some kind of a, a dismissal mechanism available to make the, the Mexican citizenship go away, I don't believe that that is uh, available under the facts of this case because it's it, — But it's what happened. They did go away for, for reason unrelated to this lawsuit. Pursuant to Atlas's decision to change the constitution of its partnership after the time of filing and before the case was submitted to the to the jury. That is correct, yeah, Your Honor. Long before the case was tried. Before the, well, uh, so when, the case, when this case was tried, there was complete diversity. That is correct. Approximately six weeks prior to trial, the change in Atlas's uh, composition became effective so that at that point there would there is complete <coughs> diversity if that post-filing change is given effect. And I would submit to the Court that under the longstanding rule going back as far as 1824 in Mullen versus Torrance, uh, reflected in the 1891 decision in Anderson versus Watt, that the longstanding rule has been and should continue to be in this case. That post I thought in Mullen versus Torrance exactly what I described happened. Chief Justice Marshall said, you've got one spoiler on the plaintiff's side. Take it out, and you'll have complete diversity. I think that the statement in Mullen, as reflected in Connolly and then applied in Anderson versus Watt, Your Honor, is that if the change in circumstances is the result of the addition or subtraction of a party, that's one circumstance. But here we have something entirely different, which is a change in citizenship. 
uh, it would be the same as if uh, a plaintiff had lived in one state uh, and then no, moved to another state. It is the same because a partnership is a citizen of every state in which a partner resides. Isn't that correct? Correct, under card. So you have, just as if you'd have five individuals, that's what they are, in fact, and in fact, because they're jointly and severally liable. So you have, as I said before, three Texans and two Mexicans. You don't have one person that can say, ah, I'm going to defeat diversity by moving where I live, or I'm going to create diversity. You, none of these people's citizenships has ever changed. That's quite different from somebody say, saying, I want to change my citizenship. I would respectfully disagree, Your Honor, because I think Atlas's citizenship changed by virtue of changing the composition of its partnership, and that is on all fours the same circumstance as if a, a, a litigant had lived in one state and then tried to move to another state uh, in an effort to create retroactive but diversity didn't jurisdiction. But did Texas behind? Texas was always there. The Mexican partners left. So I just don't see that it's anything like, I mean, this, as I said before, there's the same five people, two drop out, and so you've got three Texans. And they were always three Texans. They didn't move to Texas. They were there from the start. The, the function of Atlas changing its citizenship after the time of filing and thereafter claiming, this is Atlas's argument, that that cures our jurisdictional defect, I would submit to the Court, is the same thing as a citizen moving from one state to the other, because, in effect, what Atlas is saying by relying on that argument is uh, we moved out of tech, uh, moved out of Mexico and, and resided exclusively in Texas as of the time of suit. That is the whole basis for Atlas's argument as to why the jurisdictional defect, according to Atlas, was cured as of the time of trial. And I think that's where the, the conflict comes in if with Atlas the change of If Atlas had been a corporation I'm, incorporated in Texas, then there would have been complete diversity, right? I'm, I didn't If Atlas, it, instead of being a partnership composed of five members, it had organized as a corporation, as a Texas corporation. Then it would be under the, the different provision of 1332. It would be a citizen of its place of incorporation and its principal place of business, and that would not be the issue that, but that, that we have would, here today. Would, my question is, wouldn't the, if these if this entity had been organized as a corporation, there would have been complete diversity? There, there, yes, there would not be an issue here because of a different operation of 1332 as applied to corporations. But the point of Cardin was, as, as, as I read the case, is that uh, limited partnerships are going to be treated differently. There is yes. no analog but from corporate. I don't want to belabor this any further, <coughs> but you do see the difference between an individual moving from New York to New Jersey, say, and a, cor- a partnership with five partners all of whom remain where they are. They don't move anyplace else. Those partners, those live human beings, stay exactly what they were. Their citizenship doesn't change. I understand the point, and our position is that when Atlas contends that it has cured the jurisdictional defect by changing the composition of its partnership, that is effectively the same as the litigant moving from New Jersey to New York and claiming, I have have fixed the jurisdictional problem because my citizenship has changed. It comes down to a change in citizenship, and I think that's what implicates the longstanding rule that the Court has enforced. Mr. Boyce, can I ask you a question about how far your position extends? Uh, you say that it wasn't too late to, to, to raise the jurisdictional issue when you did. Supposing 
there had been a trial, and instead of your losing, you'd won. And then you knew about the jurisdictional defect, and then you waited to see what would happen on appeal, then you lost on appeal, and then you decided to raise the jurisdictional defect. Would you say that was — they would then be required to dismiss? Yes, Your Honor. I think the mo- right. Suppose then it was affirmed and then you decided you didn't realize it until after the judgment had been entered and become final and so forth, and then a year later you find out about it. Could you raise it then? I don't think it would be the proper subject of a collateral attack after the uh, initial case in which it has been uh, adjudicated is over with. But in terms of where along the line within that case can it be raised, our position is it can be raised and indeed must so you be can raised. Say it can time. always be raised on direct uh, — while until a final judgment's entered, that it can never be raised on collateral attack. That is my understanding, and, and I think the most closely analogous case to the hypothetical that, that you're putting forth would be the Capron versus Norden case uh, from 1804. It was discussed in, in this Court's recent decision in Contrick, where in that case, uh, the plaintiff who had filed the case in federal court uh, lost at trial and then went up on appeal to this Court. The plaintiff who filed the case at that late stage, identified the lack of jurisdiction, and the court said, there is no jurisdiction here. If there's no jurisdiction, there's no jurisdiction, and the, the, the timing of the conduct of it is not germane to that inquiry because it's not something that can be created by the party's litigation conduct. We have to punish you some other way, maybe fine you or make you pay costs for the other side, but we cannot punish you for that by expanding our own jurisdiction. That's your point. That, that's our point. Yeah, Catherine against Norton was one party on one side, one party on the other. It wasn't a case where, at the time of the trial, there was complete diversity. I frankly have a hard time distinguishing this case from Caterpillar, which started out non-diverse, but before trial became diverse. I would like to address the circumstances under which this case is distinguishable from Caterpillar because that obviously is is what Atlas relies very heavily on uh, in its briefing. And I think there are a number of important distinctions here, the first and foremost being that the citizenship of the parties to the final judgment in Caterpillar did not change. That was a circumstance where the the diversity-spoiling litigant was dismissed pursuant to Rule 21. That is not our circumstance here. So if this would be the same... If the Atlas had come to the court and said, uh, now, court, uh, I want you to dismiss the two Mexicans, because they're no longer part of the corporation, and gotten an order to, to do that. That would be a different circumstance. I, I hasten to add that in terms of Atlas suing Dataflux, uh, Mr. Yamosa and Mr. Robles were not Plaintiffs. Atlas itself was the plaintiff, and the problem arises because of the, me- the Mexican citizenship of Mr. Yamosa and Robles is attributed to Atlas. But if, if a different circumstance is, is, is hypothesized where uh, there's a dismissal, then I think that brings uh, Rule 21 into play, as, as the Court uh, discussed in the, in the Newman-Green decision. There is a source of authority for addressing that circumstance under Rule 21. <coughs> Here we have a situation where uh, this is not a removal case. This is not a dismissal case. And, and the question arises. Uh, my question was, could they have dismissed? And, and as far as removal, I perhaps don't remember uh, Caterpillar that well, but of course it arose out of a re- removal. That's how it happened. But the court didn't make the removal dispositive. Uh, Your Honor, I, I would not presume to, to say what the, the court meant to do, but I would highlight 
the discussion in the subsequent lexicon case where the point, I, I think, was made that, indeed, Caterpillar was grounded on the removal statute and specifically Section 1441, the issue being in Caterpillar that the case was not fit for federal adjudication at the time of removal and that that was the uh, error. There was an untimely yes, compliance. It certainly was of 1441, and the opinion certainly alerts district judges that when a case comes over from the state court, Maybe you want to look at it to make sure that there is federal jurisdiction. But I didn't think that there was anything peculiar about 1441 and the obligation of a judge to look into jurisdiction. I don't know why the same thing wouldn't apply to 1332. Uh, I would submit, Your Honor, that there are different — there's a different statutory overlay that, that was being addressed in Caterpillar, the overlay of the removal statutes. Here we're under a circumstance where this, not, this is not a removal case. Therefore, we are under Section 1332 alone, and the, the longstanding rule that uh, the citizenship is going to be measured as of the time of filing. At, at this stage where the rule has been followed for some 180 years, I believe that similar uh, to a complete diversity requirement, it is now part and parcel of Section 1332, so there's no removal overlay to be addressed. And and there's an additional circumstance here that I think in significant part Caterpillar operates to protect a defendant's uh, right to removal. The the removal in that case, uh, the removal right was subject to being lost because of the timing of the dismissal of the non-diverse party. Uh, There was a a problem for Caterpillar in bumping up against the one-year time limit. In other words, Caterpillar operates to protect a, a right to invoke the federal forum. Here, by definition, well, I, don't, I don't follow that because it was wrongfully removed by the defendant, had no right to be in the federal forum when he got there. And, and, and the poor plaintiff who wanted to be in the state court got stuck with losing a federal court case. So it wasn't protecting the defendant right to remove. The defendant had no right to remove. It wasn't a proper federal case until who uh, was it? one of the parties got dropped out? Uh, I, I would go back to Lexicon's description of Caterpillar, which is that there Why was an untimely. Why don't you go back to Caterpillar's description of Caterpillar? Yes, Your Honor. I, I think at, at bottom, Caterpillar cannot be divorced from the removal context in which it arose. And it, it was, it was you high. rely on a distinction between the defendant's right to a federal forum and the plaintiff's right to a federal forum? Uh, it seems to me they're exactly the same. At the time it's invoked, it's, there's no federal jurisdiction. Uh, I think that under certain circumstances, Congress has made a distinction between a defendant's right to invoke a federal forum and a plaintiff's right to invoke a federal forum. But then are you, are you saying this is, a, is the rule you rely on a constitutional rule or a statutory rule? It is a primarily a statutory rule. Operating. In other words, you don't say the Constitution would pr- prohibit us from uh, affirming. I, I need to qualify my answer, Justice Stevens, because under some circumstances there may be Article Three implications here because if, if it's a circumstance where you have just an issue of whether or not there's complete diversity, then that's a statutory issue. But if, if retroactive diversity is being recognized so as to allow a case to remain in federal court for some two or three years, as happened in this situation, where there isn't even Article Three uh, diversity requirement. Let's say you have an alien versus an alien with no citizen present. That does have Article Three implications. So there's, a, there's no subject to jurisdiction as a matter of constitutional law. It's just no subject matter jurisdiction. But nevertheless, you say it can be no, no collateral attack on the judgment. 
I'm not sure that uh, I understand the, why there couldn't be a collateral attack if you're dead right on this. Uh, I think that, uh, and I, I cannot cite the case that, that I'm relying on for that, but in the, in the course of reviewing, I, I believe that I saw the, the statement regarding collateral attack. But I, I, you I think, are you're right. I think you're right, but fact. I'm just wondering why. If, it, there, if, there was a, if there was an adjudication of the uh, jurisdiction in the uh, direct case, that's binding on the parties when the thing has become final, just as well as the merits. But, but I, I think maybe the, the primary focus here uh, in terms of the applicability of the time of filing rule is one that, that turns on the, the purposes of the time of filing rule. These are uh, summarized in the — May I take you back a little way? It isn't constitutional because incomplete diversity is fine, minimal diversity is fine under the Constitution. The statute, 1332, has always been interpreted to require complete diversity. Correct. When Marshall first mentions that you can't oust jurisdiction by something that happens after, he doesn't talk about the statute. The cases that you are, are discussing, out of which the timely filing rule arises, it's a kind of a common law that he's spreading out. He doesn't cite the, the jurisdictional statute for that. I, I have to agree that, that both um, uh, Connolly versus Taylor uh, and Mullen versus Torrance do not uh, specifically anchor it in the statute. And to, to some extent, I would, I would have to acknowledge that they're somewhat cryptic. But I think the, the clearest statutory anchor as the basis of this rule comes from Anderson versus Watt, which applying Mullen and applying Connolly does specifically anchor it in the 1875 iteration of the diversity statute in the course of its discussion. And, and I think that's the clearest indication that this is indeed. Well, what was the date of Anderson, 1891? 1891, correct. And the point that we would emphasize here, Your Honor, is that the long-standing interpretation similar to uh, complete diversity, as discussed in the Owen uh, Equipment versus Kroger case, is now part and parcel of Section 1332 and its predecessors. And, and so it's not a situation merely that the Fifth Circuit is, is stepping into some area where the Court did not expressly address it in Caterpillar. I think the Fifth Circuit has, in fact, gone beyond that by creating this new rule, because it's a circumstance where it is going contrary to the longstanding interpretation and understanding of 1332. As I understand the bottom line of what the situation would be, there was a trial between totally diverse parties. you, You say that has to be undone. There's no question now that there is complete diversity between these same two parties. So this isn't a case where there's any federalism interest. This wouldn't go back to the state court. This is a proper suit for Atlas to bring in federal court. And so you'd have the same court, the same parties, going over exactly the same case, which does seem a terrible waste. I I would focus on one portion of Your Honor's question, which is in terms of an assumption that this case automatically would go back to federal court. That may well happen, but we don't know. No, it would be up to Atlas. But Atlas at this point, being totally diverse from Dataflux, could walk in the day that Atlas is thrown out. It can come in the revolving door and say, here's a fresh complaint. Let's start all over again. 
I think an underlying assumption of that question is that Atlas has not yet again changed its, its uh, partnership, and I do not know the answer to that question. May, may I ask you, is there a, another impediment that you do know about, like <coughs> the statute of limitations? There will be an issue. The answer to your question is that, that whether or not limitations would prevent an, present an obstacle to Atlas is going to be determined under the Texas Savings Statute and or the New York Savings Statute. There was a choice of law uh, dispute. Well, I, assumed you, I assumed you looked into this. And uh, there is a, a, a saving statute, assuming Texas law applies, that would allow Atlas to refile suit. One point that I would note, and, and this is outside the scope of the record, but I, I, I would put it before the court to completely answer the question is that Atlas already has refiled once uh, within 10 days of the initial dismissal. It refiled in federal court and then subsequently dismissed the second federal court lawsuit. There may be an issue under the savings statute in terms of how many times do you get to refile, and, and I don't know the answer to that. We haven't looked at that specifically. But there is a saving statute available, uh, and I presume Atlas would invoke it. Uh, at what point do they file and refile? Because the Court of Appeals held in their favor. They filed after the trial court dismissal and before the Fifth Circuit held in their favor. And I believe that the, the second suit was filed in December of 2000 and dismissed in approximately October of 2001. I think that's the chronology uh, of it. Dismissed after they won on appeal or before? I think it was before the, the Fifth Circuit uh, ruled in the case. But the, the, the point that I would emphasize is that the, the purposes of the time of filing rule transcend any individual case. What is it? What is it? I mean, imagine the worst case. A Lithuanian sues a citizen of Taiwan in New York on July 1st. On July 2nd, they both become citizens. When, well, what I'm going to ask is what's the worst? I don't see a constitutional problem. They didn't notice it till after judgment. What's the worst thing that could happen if we were to say, as a matter of policy, if you like, federal policy, there's an exception to the time of filing rule when nobody notices until after the judgment's entered to prevent manipulation? What's the worst thing that would happen? Justice Breyer, the worst thing that can happen is uncertainty in what was formerly a bright-line rule in terms of litigants being able to determine with some certainty whether or not they belong in federal court. Uh, and I would also focus on this point, which is I, I think that one question that the Fifth Circuit and Atlas do not answer is, what is the source of authority for a federal court to recognize this retroactive jurisdiction here? By process of elimination, we know what it is not. It is not Section 1653 because that addresses only uh, defective allegations, not defective facts. It is not Section 1441 or 1446 because this is not a removal case and it's not Rule 21. So the, the, the bottom line inquiry then is what, what is the source of this authority and, and I don't think the authority is there and in fact this is contrary to Section 1332. And with that I would reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Boyce. Uh, Mr. Greenberg, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Respondent asks, asks that this Court affirm the Fifth Circuit's judgment and hold that based on this Court's precedent, the trial court had subject matter jurisdiction at the time of trial because the lack of complete diversity 
between the parties was cured before trial. This Court unanimously held in Caterpillar that if the jurisdictional defect is cured before trial and then a case is tried on the merits and the Court has Article Three, it's an Article Three Court, it has subject matter jurisdiction, that it has the judicial power to preside over the yeah, but Caterpillar involved uh, the, the, uh, a situation in which the jurisdictional defect was cured by a change in which parties were in the case. That has not occurred here. That's correct. The party is the same, and that makes it a different case. So I, you can't possibly say we've decided this. Uh, ju- with all due respect, uh, Justice Scalia, our position is that Caterpillar and the thread through Caterpillar of Newman Green and Grubbs points out that that is not an issue that was determinative of the decision. The Court specified unanimously in Caterpillar that once diversity is cured, it didn't say has to be cured a certain way. It didn't say has to be cured by a dispensable party leaving, etc. It said simply, once a case has been tried and diversity obtained at the time of trial, that the that uh, well, Erie Pillar certainly is not a white horse case for you. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a conflict in the circuits the way there is. Certainly, there are significant similarities, but there are differences too. Uh, respectfully, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, our position is that. The facts in this case are much narrower than Caterpillar. We fall under the umbrella of Caterpillar. Here we did not have, for example, as in Caterpillar, a mistaken challenge at the inception of the case that the Court decided in Caterpillar to overlook when it did not remand the case. There is no issue of that ilk. But there was something that you overlooked or whoever was representing Atlas, when did Atlas first become aware that the citizenship of each partner counts for diversity? I mean, this was set up as a Texas business, but in a partnership, unlike a corporation, each partner's citizenship counts equally. And when did you first become aware of that rule? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I don't know if the record reflects that issue. But answering your question, I don't think either party in the record adverted to that issue until the motion to dismiss was filed uh, by Grupo Dataflux. Therefore, the case continued on from filing through trial to verdict without either party adverting to the fact that there may have been a jurisdictional problem until Is it your understanding that the party, that the attorney for Atlas in this case would have the obligation to advise the court of the problem the moment it was discovered? Does the attorney have an ethical duty to advise that the original pleading uh, was, was misleading as, as soon as the attorney finds out uh, that this problem existed? Justice Kennedy, I believe so, yes. And I, and I believe that the parties uh, on either side, as well as the court, I might add, 
if the court learned of uh, or had an issue, uh, would have brought it up. But I think certainly uh, counsel had an ethical duty to do so. The the issue before you is whether this case creates a new or different exception to the rule of time of filing, and we posit it does not, because Caterpillar, contrary to to the position of the petitioner, Caterpillar stands for the propositions, as I have stated, which are overwhelming according to the Court. Finality, in that opinion, costs of litigation, litigants waiting in line. That is an exception to the rule of the time of filing. This case falls within much narrower, because the Fifth Circuit said, if it's cured before trial and not raised till after trial, then that's the test. That's a much narrower test. What's the latest time it can be raised in the view of the Fifth Circuit? In, in the view of the Fifth Circuit, raised before trial, yeah. cured before trial, but not raised, at, but raised after is what the Court's test was. Yeah, but in your time of filing rule, you, you have a very definite period. Now, this is an exception, and when is the, under the rule of the exception, when is the last time this can be raised? I would, with uh, respectfully, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, I would think before trial is is the last time it can be raised, because Caterpillar says once a case has been tried, it, it's very clear, and and our in this case, Atlas was tried to a jury, and as Justice Ginsburg correctly pointed out, this case goes right back to the same court. And if the considerations of finality, of cost of litigation, of people, litigants waiting in line to have their cases tried is to have any meaning, then this Court should overlay that on the facts of this case and see, well, it would be, as Yogi Berra said, deja vu all over again just to go try this case. Does the record tell us why the partnership was changed in its composition? The, the record does not. The, the, on, the record only reflects that six, uh, six months before the trial, the two Mexican partners were bought out, if you will, were no longer partners. That was not finalized because of some it — was, it was final from the party standpoint, but there was a technical uh, need for some document from the NASD, and I'm not sure that's in the record — that, that's why petitioner says, well, it was really only finally cured uh, a month before trial. But nevertheless. Did the same attorneys represent uh, the partnership in, in this uh, change of partner transaction as we're representing the, uh, the Atlas in the litigation? No. No, you were, no uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, that is not the case. Do you uh, see a, any impediment? Oh, first of all, Explain to me what that second filing was. Mr. Boyce told us that yes. you filed a second complaint. That is not in the record. But what occurred is when the judge dismissed this case after the jury trial, the thought process was, well, let's start anew so that whatever happens on appeal, that case will be advanced so much it would be tried right away, we thought. 
But after discussing it and after thinking about it, we didn't want two cases to go along at the same time, so we, d- it, we dismissed it without prejudice, relying on whatever happens in this case. So you did that before you knew what the outcome was? Oh, yes. We did that long before we knew what the, long before we knew what the outcome or the briefing was in the, in the, in the Fifth Circuit. Do you know of any impediment? Now, now it's for sure that you can go back to the same court and the same parties, do the same thing all over again. Mr. Boyce said that as far as the Texas statute of limitations is concerned, it's not a problem. Is, is there anything that, apart from repeating the same thing, that would put you at a disadvantage? Mr. Boyce is a bright lawyer, and I don't know what's in his mind. But as for me, I believe there's a savings clause in the Texas statutory scheme that upon ruling by this Court, if it were not to uphold the Fifth Circuit, uh, and this case had to be uh, refiled in district court, I, I believe that that savings clause would pertain except, except that in the record it shows that New York law is to apply to this litigation, and I don't know whether New York substantive law would apply or Texas procedural law would apply. My coming here today, of course, was the hope of an affirmance and not have to face that issue. And uh, Under the Fifth Circuit rule, uh, suppose there's no diversity when the suit's filed because the plaintiff uh, resides uh, in the same state as one of the defendants, and then the plaintiff moves in order to create diversity. Doesn't the Fifth Circuit rule uh, permit uh, that to occur without destroying the jurisdiction of the court? I'll answer. Let, let's say this is done just before trial. And the issue then is raised after the trial? Yeah. Um, I, I would respectfully say this. Not only do I think the Fifth Circuit rule allows that, I think Caterpillar allows that. You think which? I think Caterpillar, the Caterpillar. unanimous decision of this court, would allow that same fact situation. But it's, it's really qu- it's really quite different to say. Look, at it's the same party here who was here at the outset of the trial. This very same person, and he's been here all through. All that's happened is one other person who who destroyed jurisdiction has gotten out. It seems to me it's quite something different to say. We had we had one person you know, originally, with, with a certain citizenship, that's, that same person is here. It was bad as to, as to him originally, but now it's changed because he's changed his citizenship. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the same situation. It seems to me quite different. It seems to me that that situation is just what Justice Marshall dealt with when he said you cannot oust a court of jurisdiction once lodged. So if there is uh, authority then it doesn't matter whether that plaintiff moves. I mean, a plaintiff who certainly couldn't move and become non-diverse and hope to escape an adverse judgment. I thought, I thought that rule was firm, that a single plaintiff, if it's just a two-party lawsuit, jurisdiction is not ousted. And I don't think that Caterpillar in any way suggests that that one party um, plaintiff situation would be different. The, the partnership is sort of in between. It's not like a single individual. 
But it's not quite like Caterpillar either, where they were wholly discrete parties. I, I noted in Caterpillar at page 11 that the Court cited the McMahon case from the Third Circuit in which there was a change in the partnership after the filing but before the trial so as to um, empower the Court with complete uh, diversity and the Court had the judicial power to decide the case. I take it that if this Court, in its unanimous opinion, referred to the McMahon case, Knopf versus McMahon, that it, it understood that change in that case and did not dispute the fact, therefore, that the change in a limited partnership um, is acceptable so that when that change occurs and then there is complete diversity and then there is a trial, that the Court has the Article Three judicial power to decide the case. Or as, or as Justice Souter said in Lexicon, while not on all fours with this case by any means, there was no continuing defiance, but merely untimely compliance. In this case, there was no continuing defiance of the Court's jurisdiction. Once the limited partners were bought out of the limited partnership, this Court acquired the power. And once it acquired the power, the lineage of cases, the thread of cases from, from Grubbs, Newman Green, and Caterpillar say this Court has the power to well, Grubbs, consider that what, case. Well, Grubbs was a removal case. Yes, that is true. The only direct filing case. You are correct, Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist. I'm glad to know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and, and following on that, but of course Newman Green, a Rule 21 case admittedly, is very instructive here because Newman Green, the court gave the plaintiff the option of dismissing the dispensable party. The plaintiff took the option. While the case was on appeal, the appellate court gave the option. The plaintiff dismissed the dispensable party, and the court said, okay, we had jurisdiction then to render, the, the district court had jurisdiction then to render summary judgment in that case. The plaintiff could have turned down that power and said, no, I don't want to lose that dispensable party. He may be the money man. He may be the one that I can come after later on. So you do have this court in Newman Green um, approving, if you will, the act of the plaintiff unilaterally to make the decision whether it's going to stay in federal court or, in that case, uh, uh, well, stay in federal court. Here, there are, there are the, the petitioner raises two salient issues. Removal is different than remand, and this was unilateral. I've covered the unilateral, in my opinion, and I will say one final thing about subject to questions about the removal, and that is, once a case comes to this court by removal or by direct filing, the jurisdictional questions are the same at that point, and that is, is there diversity? And in Caterpillar, it said, well, there wasn't, and the court erroneously ruled, but later on, diversity obtained, and we had Article III jurisdictional power to try the case. I, it's like coming to Washington, D.C. by train, boat, plane, 
Once you get to Washington, D.C., you're subject to the same rules. Once we became uh, before the federal court by direct filing, or once Caterpillar in the removal filing, the test was the same. We, we believe this is a very, May very I just narrow. Ask you one general case. question. It, it, in your view, is the rule that you ask, uh, advocate a one-way street in the sense that if there was jurisdiction when the case was filed, and then the next week the plaintiff moved to the same state of the defendant, there would nevertheless continue to be jurisdiction all the way down the line. That, Justice Stevens, that is correct. So it's only this, this rule, if we adopt it, is 100 percent. It's, it's to preserve. It's always to preserve or to allow a later a, a belated creation of jurisdiction. Once the court acquires the power, it doesn't lose it or it is not divested by the actions of the party. Okay. And then the second question, I just want to be 100 percent sure on your view, is if the original defect is discovered before trial, even though it had been corrected a day or two later, there would still be a duty to dismiss the complaint, dismiss for want of jurisdiction, uh, because there was no jurisdiction at the time of filing, under your view. Respectfully, Justice Stevens, it's not my view. It's what I believe Caterpillar says, because Caterpillar speaks of a case having been tried. The words are, cases tried on, on well, I hope it's page 11. It, well, it, that would be the end of filing, not, not before trial. He said, uh, the question is, before you, you're, you're taking the position before trial. Once trial has started. The, I think the court would have to dismiss the case. Well, that's not what Caterpillar says. Having been tried is it what It says having been tried. I, I take that to mean the trial having been completed. Yeah. So do I. So I, I'm agreeing with you. I think the court. Uh, uh, Caterpillar said that if at the time of trial. Yes. You have no spoiler in the picture, which was what Caterpillar was. That's correct. And if there's a sentence that says something different, the facts in Caterpillar was before the trial began, it was complete diversity. That's correct. Your answer to Justice Stevens when he put his question was, yes. Yes. If, in fact, it's noticed before the trial is complete, it is necessary to dismiss. And that, you believe, the answer is one, yes, and you believe that's implicit in Caterpillar because you agree with what Justice Scalia said. That is correct. That's very well put, and I thank you very much. I suppose. suppose. I, I honestly thought that was my who, answer. Who, who is that man? <laughs> I honestly thought that was my answer. I but <laughs> but I also I also have to hasten to point out that Justice Ginsburg's opinion says cured. You know, if it's cured before uh, trial. Uh, in in this case. It was cured before trial, but it wasn't raised before trial. It was raised after the trial. We fall well within the umbrella of Caterpillar. Suppose you had gone to that trial with the two Mexicans still in the partnership, and you had won, and then could you then have said to the court, we don't need those Mexican partners. They're out of here. So now we'd like to... uh, make a motion under Rule 21 to drop those two people from the party lineup. Could you have done that? Under Rule 21, uh, if they were dispensable, yes. So you are su- suggesting that a plaintiff could say, play the same game as a defendant could play, saying, oh, I'm going to go in, I'm going to go in and get my trial, and I'm going to have those two spoilers mm-hmm. in the case. And if I win, fine, I won't open my mouth. If I lose, 
out, they go and I start over again. I understand the question, and respectfully, Justice Ginsburg, I would say that Rule 21, Newman Green, and Caterpillar does allow that. I would say, though, on the other hand, that there are other checks on, on the ethics of, of lawyers if they do go in with that type of mental frame of mind, that there are ethical obligations, and you're going to face the wrath of the court. The court may have a, a hearing, for example, to you, for you to show cause why you should be sanctioned for misrepresenting things to the court. I, I'm very concerned about that. If, if the rule you're proposing kind of invites the sort of conduct that you say is prohibited, maybe there's something wrong with the rule. I'm not proposing a rule. Uh, well, you're, propo- you're proposing a rule that is derived, you say, from Caterpillar. I'm proposing that, that this case, on its facts, falls within the exception in Caterpillar. I'm not advocating any new rule. Well, except that there was not a limited partnership in Caterpillar. There was not a limited partnership in Caterpillar, but diversity was cured before trial, and the issue was not raised until after trial. And I suppose you would argue that uh, if we're looking for bright-line rules, we shouldn't make a turn on what the nature of a particular jurisdictional defect was, or they moved to another state or you, you, you let one partner resign or something like that. The bright-line rule, it seems to me, has to turn on whether it's equally bright-line to say you can make this objection up till the time of uh, the verdict in the trial court, or it's equally bright-line to say you can do it up to the time that the appellate court judgment is final. You can't do it after. We all agree you can't do it on collateral attack. And I don't know why one has any more bright line than the other, unless you get into these ramifications. There's a difference between removal and filing or a difference between the, res- the plaintiff moving to another state or, or adding a partner. Those are all, seems to me, any one of those would depart from the need for a bright line rule. Uh, respectfully, Justice Stevens, I do agree with that. Yeah. I think the rule, um, the time of filing rule is, is a general rule, and it has been subject to exception. We fall, we, this case, falls within the Caterpillar, Newman Green, Grubbs exception. Yes, there are distinctions in the factual issues, but those distinctions are without a difference as far as what we would ask this Court to do. Well, they're pretty big distinctions because in the other cases, they were just extra parties that could be dropped out. Here, the whole partnership, the nature of the partnership had to change. There was the, the, the initial premise for the jurisdiction was wrong based on uh, the identity and the composition of the partnership, not the identity and the composition of all of the parties that are in the complaint. Now, that may be metaphysical, but it, it does seem to me to, um, open more room for manipulation than it existed just with Caterpillar on the books. Respectfully, uh, Justice Kennedy, I will answer your question. I I do not think it opens the door to more manipulation. Two reasons. Uh, Number one, in Texas, the general partner has the right to bring lawsuits. The limited partners do not have the right to sue or be sued in their name on behalf of the limited partnership. That's a very important distinction here. The the second point, and I think this is more important, the precedent of this Court does not discuss intent. Caterpillar, Newman Green, 
Grubbs did not talk about what were the parties' intent at the time that the jurisdictional Article III power came to this Court. Since there is no discussion in those cases of intent, it is my reading that intent is not an issue. It's an absolute, did the Court have jurisdiction or does it not? And I think there are checks and balances on lawyers who would manipulate, as you say, Justice Kennedy. Can I get back to, uh, to bright-line rules? Uh, it seems to me uh, it is a bright-line rule that you can preserve jurisdiction by dismissing a party. That's very bright-line. Uh, I don't think it's very bright line to say, uh, you know, whenever there was a jurisdictional defect which later is cured, uh, in any way whatever. I mean, this case involves uh, an alteration in the citizenship of the partnership. What about an alteration in the citizenship of the corporation? They reincorporate somewhere else before the thing happens. What about a, a private individual who decides to move to another state? Is that covered? Or, or, is this bright line when, when we still have all of these uh, all of these future cases in front of us? It, it seems to me it is not. Respectfully, Justice Scalia, in Caterpillar at page 11, there are overriding considerations to those analogies, which, of course, are not the facts here. There's no showing of intent here. There's show, there's o- the only showing is uh, neither party adverted to the issue. This case was tried. But there's a difference between the absence of jurisdiction at the outset, which is what is involved when you have a plaintiff from the same state as this defendant, which can't be cured by the plaintiff moving to a diverse state. And imperfect jurisdiction, in other words, that you do have diversity, but you have a spoiler in the picture. That That is very clear in Caterpillar, less clear in the partnership, although the partners are five individuals. They are not an entity the way a corporation is. That's correct. In, in this, in this partnership, uh, there were, I think, two corporations. Wasn't the partnership sued as an entity? I thought that it was sued as a partnership. It was sued as a partnership. That as is a partnership. correct. And, yes. and so, the two individuals. So there was no jurisdiction initially over in, the partnership. That's it was, correct. It was sued. It, it, it sued. It was the plaintiff, wasn't it? The, Atlas sued yes. and was counterclaimed against by uh, Dataflux as an entity, and then Dataflux third-partied in the two Mexican individuals. But at, at the outset, contrary to the earlier statement, it was not a matter of imperfect jurisdiction. There was no jurisdiction over Atlas, period, the, corpor- the, the, the partnership. According to Cardin versus Arcoma, uh, Justice Scalia, the way I read it, the jurisdiction did not obtain at the time of filing. That was only cured later. But the overriding consideration in Caterpillar, unanimously by this Court, is once a diversity case has been tried in federal court with the rules of decisions under state law under Erie versus Tompkins, considerations of finality, efficiency, and economy become overwhelming. If I have to take those words as they are, they are overwhelming, then it is overwhelming in this case, because this case is narrower than Caterpillar. Why send this case back? I would ask this Court. Um, these principles apply regardless of whether the case arrives to federal court through removal or original filing. 
I would ask this Court, on behalf of the respondent, that this Court apply these principles to conclude that the trial court in this case had subject matter jurisdiction at the time of trial and allow this case to turn to the district court for entry of judgment consistent with the jury verdict. If uh, there are no more questions, uh, I give back to the Court the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Greenberg. Mr. Boyce, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I would like to elaborate on an answer to Justice Breyer's question, which has been touched on by a number of the questions here, which is what's the worst that can happen? And I I think the point would be this. Once the efficacy of a post-filing change in citizenship is is taken as a given, then I think you're, you're setting up a situation where the door swings both ways. Jurisdiction can be created and jurisdiction can be destroyed by virtue of post-filing he changes. He says it's the opposite. I mean, you could do that, but, I mean, it's very clear to say it could destroy it. Uh, uh, no. It could create it. Yes. I mean, that's not hard to understand, and there's a lot of authority. The, the, the rule, uh, if, if, if the line is drawn there, then I, I think that raises implications of manipulation. You can move and create it and then move back and not destroy it if, if the concern but is creating incentives. Says, only if the Court says so, because the rule, even the timely filing rule, was, no, was something that John Marshall said, and it's been that way ever since, with exceptions and recognizing that a human individual is different from a corporation, is different from a partnership, or if a court is going to make such a regime, surely it would make a sensible one and not one that's subject to abuse. If there may be, the court will will do what it will do. The question is, is there a, a creation of additional opportunities for manipulation or confusion? And we you were going to say, what are they? And, and I, I submit that if the bright line rule is no longer bright, if it, if it turns on the fact of how far into the trial court proceedings before this came up, then it's it, the, the time when you need certainty most in terms of being able to decide whether or not you have jurisdiction, that's when there's going to be the least amount of clarity. And that's the real, the real problem that's, that's created here. And, and Justice Stevens had, had asked the, the question saying, well, why don't we just draw the, the, the line? You want a bright line rule? We'll, we'll draw it at the time of trial. I think the problem here is that what you're setting up is a circumstance where for some period of time a trial court, a federal district court, is acting ultra virus, to borrow the phrase from Steel Company. For some period of time, prior to whenever you say the, the, the post-filing change could become effective, you've got a federal trial court that is operating without authority. It's no, issuing orders. The jurisdictional defects been cured. But prior to the time of that curing of that defect, you have a circumstance, as you had here for three years, for example, where you've got a federal district court issuing summary. And as you had at Caterpillar. And I guess the point I would make is, is, is this. If Caterpillar opened the door to a component of retroactive jurisdiction, it did not open that door very wide. And, and the, the choice is, should that, should that door be opened wider, and what are the problems that result from that? And our position would be that the confusion and uncertainty and opportunities for manipulation that are going to result from opening that door wider uh, make it appropriate to leave the line Can you drawn imagine a plaintiff's lawyer deliberately filing a federal lawsuit where he knows there's no federal jurisdiction? Why would he ever do that? 
that may not be a, a circumstance that, that is likely to happen. But you're talking about this. deliberate manipulation, and I just don't understand why a competent lawyer would ever do that. I, I think that the, the greater issue is, is one of uncertainty and of having a circumstance like this case or, or going back as early as, as the Capron case, where the case gets filed and gets tried, and then the issue comes up. I, I do want to make one note about the reference to the Knopp case. I would Thank you, Mr. Boyce. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.